Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. More than race, more than gender. Class and wealth is the great divide in America today. There was a time when those with wealth represented a kind of noblesse oblige. They had a sense of obligation to the larger society that allowed them the opportunity to succeed. Today, though, something is different, something that goes far beyond the greed-is-good utterances of Gordon Gekko. There is at the heart of today's class divide an anger at the wealth pooling at the very top. It's fueled further by the complexity of our economic system, the power of money to shape public policy, the role of education for successful jobs, and the rural-urban divide. So how did we get here, and what can we really do about it? We're going to spend some time talking about this today with Chuck Collins. Chuck Collins is a researcher, storyteller, and writer based at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he co-edits inequality.org. He's written extensively on wealth inequality in many previous books. It is my pleasure to welcome Chuck Collins back to this program to talk about his newest work, Born on Third Base, a one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home, and committing to the common good. Chuck Collins, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's good to have you back. How did we get to this point? How did we get to a point where the class divide is not only so wide, but that there is all this anger that surrounds it? Well, I think it it is a, uh, a, a polarized society and a polarized politics really does flow out of a polarized economy. And uh, if you think about it, really, for over almost 40 years, we have been, um, you know, the rules of the economy have, have been tilted to benefit asset owners at the expense of wage earners. And so if you keep doing that for decades, uh, you pull apart. Uh, you pull apart in, in terms of income, wealth, assets, and opportunity, and that then in turn fuels kind of a civil divide which is what we're living through now. Of course, the, the other overlay to that is the degree to which fundamental changes and shifts in the economy have also impacted wage earners and the kind of jobs that were considered for so long good middle-class jobs. Yeah, I mean, we're living in a globalized economy where, uh, uh, but I, I see that as an extension of the rules, you know, the rules that govern global trade, uh, many of the trade agreements, uh, pit uh, U.S. workers against low-wage workers around the world in a in a race to the bottom. Um, so so these inequalities. The, the, so the, the, these are not acts of nature. These are actually things we have a large degree of control over. There are, there are a lot of other countries in the global economy that compete that don't have the high levels of inequality that the United States has. To one extent, though. If, if we go back to the 80s and we look at the way money started to, to really flow around the world, the free flow of money around the world, it was really the beginning of, of this kind of globalization that we see today. To what extent, though, was that kind of a, a force of nature that, that couldn't have been stopped at the time, maybe shouldn't have even been stopped, but should have been addressed in ways that might have prevented some of the problems that we're seeing today? Well, you know, I mean, I think of um, other, uh, like the Nordic countries that are part of the same global economy, uh, mm-hmm. exposed to the same pressures, but were able to maintain sort of a, a, a social floor, a wage floor, and um, a, a floor that people could not fall through, 
Whereas the United States, uh, you know, you're, many people are one job loss, one divorce, or one illness away from economic destitution. It just doesn't have to be that way. So we could have, as we were going deeper into the global economy, um, made the investments to, to, to create a decent floor. And we could have done that also by taxing higher incomes and taxing wealth to, to pay for it. And that's essentially the Canadian or the Nordic model. And uh, we chose not to. And why did we make that choice? How did we come to make that choice? And is that instructive in trying to figure out what we do next? Well, <clears throat> I mean, in, in some ways, there were, there were powerful actors, you know, uh, global corporations and, and uh, people who, who advocated for changing the rules. But there was a culture shift as well. You know, I think we, we moved from a we're in it together to a you're all, you're all on your own you are on your own sort of culture uh, and a culture of extreme individualism, which didn't really help. And then we also mythologized wealth, you know, and, and the idea that, you know, wealth is a function of individual effort and it's the reward for hard work, uh, which is true to a small extent. But what we're living through, this extreme inequality, it's, it's, it's a systemic issue. And, uh, you know, no, no one does it alone. We're, we, we live in a society that helps uh, the wealth creation process. Are we at another inflection point in all of this at this point? As we look not so much at globalization and at competition to the bottom in terms of wages and workers around the world, but we're now looking at a situation where almost every single manufacturing industry is looking at robotics and artificial intelligence as really the next step in this process. Yeah, I think we are in a transition where uh, technology will again uh, disrupt us. And uh, if you just put that on top of the existing trajectory, uh, you know, where are we going? If, if the last 30 years project out into the future, we are heading uh, to what the French economist Thomas Piketty calls a a hereditary aristocracy of wealth, um, where you know the, the sons and daughters of today's billionaires will will uh, run our political system, will will dominate our culture, and whose charitable institutions will set priorities for the whole society. And uh, that that's where we're heading if we if we continue on this way. What can we begin to do, given those realities of of the economy and and of technology? and at the same time begin to address some of the issues you're talking about? Well, you know, my, the, my, my message is for everybody, we need to sort of get organized to defend our communities and local economies against the, the, the forces of extractive capitalism. And we need to, uh, you know, build, build movements to fundamentally shift the rules and right now, you know, if you look at Washington, D.C. and Congress, it's very, very hard to, you know, imagine any meaningful transformation happening. But the reality is there is a realignment happening at the base. Uh, voters, uh, people uh, at the local level support uh, investments that raise the floor, um, taxation of the wealthy, uh, reducing the influence of money in politics all the sort of democracy reforms and economic reforms that someone like Senator Bernie Sanders advocated for are wildly popular. So there's a realignment that's happening, and that will, that will in turn push and change the, the politics. 
Um, and then I think my message to the wealthy, and that's really what mm-hmm. in Born on Third Base I'm trying to say is, you know, uh, support those movements. Bring your wealth home. Bring it home from the offshore tax havens and the global global uh, Wall Street casino and, and move your money into the local economy uh, of goods and services, the real economy, where, and, and participate, put a stake back into local economies. How can that happen? How can the wealthy begin to do that and address those things without resorting to a kind of jingoistic nationalism? Well, we should always remember we're part of a global economy and that we're a dominant player in that and maintain a commitment to sort of a, a just global economy. But when I talk about bringing wealth home, I'm talking about kind of rooting people being having a stake in a place uh, where they uh, make a commitment to, to equality and ensuring that the lives of all the children in a particular region are as good as the lives of their own children. And I'm not talking about gated enclaves or walled-off communities of wealthy. I'm talking about, you know, vibrant, larger metropolitan areas. Um, and I think that the wealthy should, you know, also recognize globally that their their wealth has come from around the world and find ways to, to uh, you know, support the global green fund and things like that that actually, you know, deal with the, with the global inequities as well. Talk a little bit about individual, when we talk about the wealthy, individuals versus corporations. And lately that's become kind of indistinguishable. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the, the most powerful actors right now are, you know, a couple thousand billionaires and a couple thousand global corporations. And many, uh, very often the corporation or the corporate form is sort of the the arm that advances the public policy agenda that benefits the wealthy overall. Uh, and huge percentages of financial wealth are owned by that small segment of wealthy. So it's really an overlapping uh, set of interests there, but somewhat autonomy. You know, like you can you can organize wealthy individuals to potentially push back against excesses of corporate power in the society. And that's where it's helpful to sort of understand where their potential allies are uh, among the wealthy. Talk a little bit about that and where those potential allies might come from. Well, it's interesting to see, you know, I think that people who are actively in corporate governance, you know, the active CEOs and top managers of corporations are very much um, in the driver's seat of a global corporate agenda or um, but there's a lot of wealthy people who are not involved in corporate governance. They may actually own uh, a lot of shares of corporations and can vote and push and advocate in ways that their ownership interests um, are independent. So that's just one area. Um, I think that uh, speaking out against uh, public policies that accelerate inequality, uh, there's a lot of people both inside corporate America, but mostly outside, who have the autonomy to do that and can put their time and their treasure and their capital, uh, move their capital. Um, for instance, there's a very powerful movement that I talk about to divest from the fossil fuel sector. Um, you know, trillions of dollars is being moved out of the fossil fuel sector into the sort of new energy economy. Individuals using their own individual wealth as well as philanthropic wealth. Um, religious congregations. So that's an example of uh, wealthy people, you know, 
changing the energy economy. There was always a divide, at least in general consensus, between old money and new, old wealth and new wealth. How does that relate to this conversation? Well, I think it's a different experience. Um, someone like me who is you know, born on third base, uh, kind of more older wealth, uh, has less uh, a first-generation attachment to it, uh, has less of a claim on it in some respects. Um, but I'm, what I'm seeing is that uh, <clears throat> there's a whole group of first-generation entrepreneurs who typically are very happy to say, well, I earned this money and nobody should bother me, that there's a whole generation of first-generation entrepreneurs who uh, also recognize they didn't do it alone, that, that uh, it's a function of the public investments around them, uh, the society around them. So uh, I think it's less relevant because um, it's just clear that these inequalities are benefiting a very, very small segment, whether you're new, new wealth or old wealth. But even among the new wealth, even among Silicon Valley, for example, you see that you see exactly the divide you're talking about there, personified perhaps by you know Mark Zuckerberg on the one hand and Peter Thiel on the other. That's true. Um, I mean, I, you know, the, it, you can have old wealth though, and you can have new. I know old wealth people who still believe that their claim on the wealth is still you know based on some story of deservedness and meritocracy. Uh, there's a lot of old wealth born on third base people. I mean, think about Donald Trump or Mitt Romney or, or George W. Bush, all who ran for president, kind of arguing that they are successful business people and sort of downplaying the enormous head start that they got. So the myth of individual achievement sort of seems to cut across old wealth and new wealth as well. Right. I mean, it's the whole makers versus takers argument on the one hand. And, you know, and then then the other part of it is, and you touched on it, is this kind of Horatio Alger mythology that is so much a part of and, and so ingrained in the DNA of the American experience. And that goes to something we touched on earlier about the difference here in the U.S., versus the way this has been dealt with in places like the Nordic countries or Canada or anywhere else, where that that kind of mythology is not taken hold to the same degree, if at all. Yeah, it's in some ways it's a particularly uh, U.S. and kind of a male trait, you know, this whole mm. idea that we're just going to look at our own individual actions and we're going to not see this, this matrix of commonwealth around us, uh, publicly funded institutions and research and property rights protections like we're we're swimming in a in a culture that is helpful to private wealth creation and yet we still think it's all about us as individuals and i agree you're not going to find that in canada or scandinavian countries i mean people people just have a more nuanced understanding that you know yes individuals matter but let's look at the role of society as well and as long as there's that disconnect as long as there's that lack of understanding can we really begin to address any of these things that, that you're talking about? No, and, it, and, and in some ways that was really the motivation for, for, for writing Born on Third Base is to, is to kind of go and say, look, we can't really address these inequalities if we still believe these stories and myths about individual achievement. Um, you know, there's a segment of society that will hear the data that you and I are talking about, you know, concentration of wealth and be alarmed by it but there's a very large number of people who'll be like oh well that doesn't you know it doesn't trouble me because 
these inequalities are, are a reflection of effort and deservedness. It's like we take a, a personal story, you know, Uncle Hal really works hard and, and uh, Uncle Joe is a slacker, and we sort of project that onto these larger economic trends when they're really deep structural drivers these, driving this inequality at this point. There's also the degree to which that mythology is so ingrained that, that even people that are way, way outside anything that even might be considered middle class think, well, just one thing could happen. I could do this or I could do that, and, and I'll be like Donald Trump. Yeah, in, in some ways it's a national mythology. It's a national misunderstanding of how wealth is actually created. So you have, you know, wealthy capitalists lecturing everybody else. Uh, uh, there's the famous J. Paul Getty story. He says, well, here's my advice if you want to be wealthy. Get up early every morning, work hard all day, and find oil. You know, and, and it's like, uh, okay, just you get, get up, keep, you know, Jeff, keep, keep getting up early, working hard all day, and you will get there. Uh, and, and that's actually a lot of wealth comes from cornering the market, uh, manipulating monopolies, inheriting advantage, defending advantage. Uh, there's a whole wealth preservation industry out there now to help the already wealthy keep their wealth and keep growing it. Is this subject to, and you mentioned Bernie Sanders before, or is this subject to generational change? And is that change going to make a difference now as millennials see this? I think these inequalities uh, really affect younger people even more intensely. Uh, they're, they're graduating from high school or college, if they're able to graduate, uh, into an economy that has mostly a very low wage uh, at the center, a few winners, but mostly low wage, uh, without insurance, without an ability to retire, with massive amounts of debt, student debt and consumer debt. And I think that the next generation, I think the reason why younger people, you know, really flocked to Bernie Sanders was because he basically was saying, look, it doesn't have to be this way. We can come together. Here's how we can create a debt-free education system, and here's how we can pay for it. And uh, there are many people who, you know, in, in the United States who, who grew up and benefited from a debt-free or very low-cost mm -hmm. uh, education system, whether it was the University of California, the City University of New York, or the GI Bill after World War II. Uh, it just doesn't have to be this way. And a lot of, I think the, young, the younger generation are going to be the real engines of the transition and the transformation. And for the wealthy, are we seeing, in your view, a greater realization that there's a real danger to them and to their wealth if the current situation is not addressed, that, that the pitchforks will come, metaphorically or perhaps uh, literally? No, I think that's actually a huge motivator and a big part of the um, conversations that I've been having when I'm talking to the more affluent audiences is to say, look, this isn't good for anybody. Uh, first of all, ecologically, uh, there is no wealth uh, on a degraded earth with contaminated water. Um, there's no planet B that you can zip off to in your spaceship. And there's, uh, and there's really no escaping from a society that's polarizing and becoming unequal uh, more and more every year. It's not in anyone's interest, including people in the, in the wealthy groups. So my case is, hey, bring your wealth home. Come on home, reestablish a stake in society, give your money, pay your fair share of taxes, 
um, and work to fix the future, that that's entirely in the interests of all the wealthy now. And all of the upheaval that we're seeing in, in, in our politics today is somewhere in that, in your view, partly driven, some of that driven by this, this realignment, this, this painstaking movement that we've been talking about? Very, very much so. And, it's, and, it, and this is what happens in a, as societies pull apart. Uh, they can go progressive populist. They can go kind of Bernie Sanders. Let's look at the role of big corporations and the billionaires. And they can go regressive populist, uh, scapegoat, you know, the search for uh, scapegoats among new immigrants and people of color. And, uh, you know, it, it was very similar a century ago. The last time we had these levels of inequality gave rise to both the progressive populist uh, reform movements, but it also gave rise to the Klan and the Know Nothing Isn't Know Nothing movement and the, the anti-immigration wave of a century ago. It's very, very similar. And in that similarity, what becomes the takeaway? Is there a sense of optimism from that similarity? Well, I think uh, as we're experiencing, there's a lot of pain, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of confusion, and particularly that the, 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 the comes about because of the scapegoating. Uh, and I think that the, this is where wealthy, powerful people can can uh, have a huge role. Um, you know, we can basically step forward and say, no, this is th- th- these inequalities are bad for everybody. It's not because there are um, people of color cutting in line, taking your job. It's not because of new immigrants. It's because there's a system of rules in the economy that are helping make asset owners, people who own wealth, much richer than everyone else. And we should change the rules. It's a structural issue. It's not a personal issue. And it's, it's in everyone's interest to fix it. So I think there's a, there's a unity message potentially coming out of that uh, if we can find the right leaders and the right notes. Does it require the right leaders? Is this a situation where we have to look for, for a charismatic leader to make the case? Or is it more of a grassroots effort? Well, I think the engine of change is going to be grassroots movements of people who are affected, uh, young people who think it's ridiculous to have, you know, $100,000 of student debt, uh, low-wage workers who are basically saying, I can't live on the amount I'm being paid. But it's also going to help to have um, people in the 1%, people like, you know, the Patriotic Millionaires Network and others validating uh, those movements by saying, yeah, we, we have to have... And I think there are, uh, you know, emerging leaders, young people running for Congress, local office, who are going to be the messengers of that. So I think it's both the grassroots movements and the leaders that rise from those movements that will ultimately uh, change the situation. Chuck Collins, his book is Born on Third Base. A one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home, and committing to the common good. Chuck, it's always a pleasure. I thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Jeff, for having a great conversation. Thank you.